0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes and make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello
2: and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
1: It's such an honor to present this next award.
3: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes
0: to.
1: And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me
0: right now. You like me.
1: I'm the king of the world.
4: There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
2: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here on the line with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, We have two interviews on this week's episode, um, which means we're going to try to keep it quick at the beginning. Um, We're getting into uh, Emmy... Nomination season. So we have a lot of people who want to talk to us, which is really thrilling. Joanna talked to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, the uh, duo who did the music for Watchmen, among many other things. You may be familiar with their work. And then Hilary Busis, our Hollywood editor, talked to Julio Torres, the uh, comedian and writer, about his stand up special and all of his other work that has made him kind of a um, beloved comedian on the internet. And then we're going to have our Little Goldman Essentials rewatch series this week. We got My Cousin Vinny, which is, as I think we said last week, maybe the opposite of Amadeus in every possible way and a delight for it. But first, a few bits of news to catch up with. And um, Richard, you got to write a review this week that mentioned the Oscars, although maybe not in the way that anyone would have expected. Um, Is there a parallel universe in which Capone is going to go home with some Oscars and whenever the Oscars happen next year?
5: Well, this is a tired joke, but I'm going to make it again. If there was an Oscar for most acting, Tom Hardy would be a frontrunner. <laughs>
2: <laughs> in many years, I feel like he would have been a front runner in that category. Uh,
5: yes, I mean, pretty much almost his entire career, <laughs> minus a few movies. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I really do like him as an actor, but this performance as a dying syphilitic Al Capone in the late 1940s, it's like the last year of his life, roughly. It's too much and uh, at the service of a film that really has nothing new to say about gangsters or, you know, sort of just anti heroes who realize their fragile humanity at the end of their lives. Like it's just we've seen that before. We we just had the Irishman. We didn't need that done less intelligently, but also with this performance that's just like devouring every piece of scenery and every other actor uh, around it. I saw David Sims on Twitter, friend of the
6: pod, David Sims who I thought made a good point, which is that they should actually outlaw movies about the last few months of of somebody's life. It should (laughs) not even be allowed to be made because it's, like, inherently not going to be the most interesting periods. Anyway...
5: Yeah, I mean, I think I was trying to think of like what examples there are of that. I mean, I, I think the Iron Lady, the, which won Meryl Streep and Oscar, like there is that framing device of, of her kind of in her, in her dotage. But yeah, I can see the temptation to do it because a, a biopic so often suffer from a lack of borders, really. And so if you put this kind of idea like here is a set amount of time, but we can then look back on this entire life, um, I get the temptation, but it doesn't really work most of the time.
2: Is this the kind of thing that maybe if it weren't being released on VOD, like if it had kind of more of a, like if it had been at a festival or like it wouldn't feel kind of like small in a way that VOD movies kind of can?
7: Mm,
5: I think if it were at a festival, it would get either really overlooked or kind of become one of the, the punching bags, the punchlines of that festival. I can't see it getting into something like can, they might take yeah. it there to screen it in the market kind of like, the movie Gotti did uh, with uh, John Travolta that they took to Cannes a couple years ago and 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 thus could kind of say the movie was at Cannes, but it wasn't like selected by, you know, programming committee or anything. It was just there, brought there in a business um, thing. You know, I, I, look, the movie is directed by Josh uh, Capone is directed by Josh Trank, who is on this kind of in like, like sort of redemption narrative because you know he flamed out with Fantastic 4 got fired from a Star Wars movie reportedly due to poor behavior on his part or a sort of an unwillingness to collaborate and so now he's kind of returning with this smaller character study and i i think there's something admirable about reframing one's you know creative scope to do a smaller thing you know to kind of regroup your sensibilities and your talent um and i see glimmers of that in this but like there's not a lot in this movie train concluded frankly that's worth rooting for you know um tom hardy's gonna be fine we don't need another movie about al capone we just it just doesn't like there's nothing new to be mined there and so i just think this thing is gonna be kind of be doa ouch
2: does it add insult to injury that were life normal you would not have seen Capone this week? You would have been at Cannes watching God knows what yeah.
5: international masterpieces. <laughs> I'm supposed to be in uh. France right now, seeing Top Gun or uh, the <laughs> Leo's Car X musical with Adam Driver or the new Wes Anderson or some other unknown wonderful thing. Um, yeah, that, I I I think that like in terms of film going. Thus far, I feel the biggest loss myself personally with Can not being part of my my year this year, um, and that sucks. But you know, there's other things to review like Capone.
2: I've started getting really uh, sad preemptively about Tiff, which I think they have announced that they are still working on. It. They're programming something, some version of Tiff. It sounds like will happen in September, but. With every passing day, it feels like the odds of me personally going to Canada feel like they're getting smaller and smaller. And um, that bumps me out. So I I feel for you, Richard, even though I'm always always jealous of you going to Canada, too.
5: I mean, my thing is if I were to go to Canada in September, I don't know that I would come back.
2: (laughs) 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 I think they have ways to make you go home, but uh, you can see how long they... they, just ride the Scotiabank escalator up and down for months until they catch you.
6: <laughs> exactly. Maybe just find an abandoned lighthouse and sort of hole up there with mm. Robert Pattinson yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. eating
8: microwave pasta. Microwave pasta, yeah. <laughs>
2: Really, like, we weren't planning to talk about Robert Pattinson. It really is like legendary status already, the grossness of the food that he's eating. its um, I'm never going to forget it for the rest of my life.
8: Right. So this is in case people hadn't read it yet. This is the GQ profile of Robert Pattinson in quarantine. And like in contrast to Zoe Kravitz, who's like, I'm doing my Catwoman workout five times a day. Robert Pattinson's <laughs> like, I've become a raccoon. It's fine. I love
2: life. that that fact <laughs> made it into the GQ profile, but debuted on this podcast
8: a few weeks ago when you asked her about it. It's true. It's true. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, that's, it's a great, it's an incredible profile. I really recommend anyone uh, read up on Robert Pattinson and what he's up to this quarantine. (laughs) It makes you wonder if the lighthouse like somehow got to
2: him or if he was already like that and therefore was so good in the lighthouse.
8: I think that's what Eggers is saying, that he like brought that energy already to the lighthouse. So, um, (laughs) yeah.
2: Okay, uh, briefly, again, before um, we jump into My Cousin Vinny, I did want to talk about news that, to me, was very personally exciting and I think is also interesting, in general, looking at how we're handling movies. Uh, Disney Plus is going to launch the filmed version of Hamilton on July 3rd. It is not a movie adaptation. It is a They basically filmed the Broadway show. Um, they were planning to release it in theaters next October, like October 2021. And it seems to me that they said, okay, this is not a Marvel movie. This is not something that, like should only exclusively be in theaters we can get away with putting this on disney plus i'm not sure why bumping it up a year made sense other than that like they need things to do um i'm really excited about it do you guys uh have any thoughts or,
8: cons- or concerns on this i think it's really strategically smart to do it now i think you know maybe they're seeing some like fall off from the mandalorian was sort of like a big splashy thing for them that got a lot of people interested in disney plus and then the The talk around Disney Plus has been real quiet since, I think. So I think they kind of strategically needed a big thing to to pull even new subscribers in. I I was so convinced always that they were going to film like a beautiful version of this uh, original Broadway cast uh, production of Hamilton. And I was convinced that, like, Lynn was going to deploy it for some sort of educational purposes. But I was, like, so convinced that it was going to be, like, utilized for some kind of good. And not to sound too, like, sappy Pollyanna about it, but I'm like, (laughs) isn't this exactly what we need right now is... To watch, to get to watch Hamilton in our homes, yes, on Fourth of July weekend. Yes, yes, it will make Disney a lot of money, uh, maybe, possibly, or at least get them clout. But also, kind of feels like it feels like a gift. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say thank you.
5: Yeah, and as someone who um, my childhood brain was fully cracked open by the PBS Great Performances. Uh, taping of Into the Woods uh, with at Peters. Too. I encourage, like, theater to be brought into the home. It's not a replacement for seeing it live, certainly, but it can be a good entry point. I only wish that, you know, PBS is free to everybody, um, so it's a little bit of a shame that you have to subscribe to something, give more money to a mega corporation um, to do it. But, you know, I, I think that for a certain watershed shows like Hamilton that many people are curious about but only a select few have the resources financially, you know, geographically, whatever, to actually see the show, um, this feels like a good uh, win for both Disney Plus and for theater. Frankly,
6: yeah, and I think it'll be it'll be a fun thing. I mean, I feel like most families at this point probably feel obliged to have um, Disney Plus anyway. That can afford it, at least. I don't know. Um, it's not PBS, but I don't know what it, you're saying it's, about it's families there.
2: and what we're showing our children, Mike. But uh, yes,
6: <laughs> right. I mean, to. you know, it's just like to, that. That's like a, the the 21st century pacifier. Yeah, I I mean, I saw it. I was lucky. I I bought tickets before it opened in Broadway. And so I paid like an actual regular price um, and was not able to get back in
5: ever again. So I I would like to see it again for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've never seen it. Um, because oh, wow. I at least famously to a couple of my theater friends um, was offered press tickets to it and turned it down when it was at the public because and I said oh. eh, we'll see what that sounds dumb I'll see what the reviews say
7: oh, <laughs> and no! That sounds, and
5: then, um, never saw it obviously because I couldn't see it
2: um, I remember hovering, like going to buy tickets at the public and like hovering over the buy link and I was like, oh man, like 90 bucks or whatever it was when it was at the public. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to spend that money yet. Um, but I did manage to see it on Broadway. So I'm not quite as, uh, much as screw up as
8: Richard's. I was in the Conde offices, uh, on a rare New York visit and my sister, my dad called me and they were like, you're going to Hamilton tonight. I was like, what? They had bought me a really expensive ticket. I remember ticket. that. Yeah, so that's why I got to see it because my my, my sister and my dad, like, they're like, here's your birthday and Christmas present for the next however many years you
5: get to go see Hamilton (laughs) tonight. Has (laughs) Disney Disney used the um, marketing tagline, the room where it happens is now yours?
6: Ooh, call (laughs) them. The living room where it
5: happens. (laughs) Also, I mean, isn't there a brewing or ongoing
6: backlash against Hamilton as a sort of emblematic of like the kind of self satisfied Obama style? high-end liberalism that inadvertently, like, destroyed the world or set the table for the world being destroyed, in which case maybe yes. you want to get it out sooner rather than later before that really <laughs> fully takes hold? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it's, like, there's that, and then there's also just the thing that, like, it was really popular for a long time, so it can't be cool anymore. Um right. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, getting it out before this year's election, like, I don't know, while while there's still um, energy and hope of uh, <laughs> restoring democracy, Um maybe that is the right way to do it. Who knows where I we'll be in 2021? I they 2021.
6: really do. They really do also need just like content, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that it's an it's a thing for for Disney. I mean, obviously they moved up right Rise of Skywalker uh, mm-hmm. earlier than expected just to like have something in there.
8: Yeah, I keep waiting for them to just sort of give up and put Black Widow on there or see? Mulan. That's the one they I keep or waiting Mulan. for. Yeah.
2: Let's talk about My Cousin Vinny, our um, Little Gold Men Essentials rewatch this week. Uh, We're getting into the supporting actress races. Um, I was excited for this to win, not only because it was a, you know, light and fun comedy that I hadn't seen in a long time, uh, but Marissa Tomei's performance is kind of, uh, it's so good and is also kind of famous for all of these, um, you know, conspiracy theories that were around her win that we can talk about. I felt like this movie, despite like being dated in some ways that maybe we can talk about, held up really wonderfully well, especially in the famous courtroom scene at the end that I think is probably what won her the Oscar. How, how did you guys feel revisiting this?
8: This is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I haven't <laughs> I have it memorized, and so it was just a joy to watch it again. Yes.
2: You, did you actually rewatch it? Or did you just like replay it in your brain?
8: No, I rewatched it, and I read a bunch of like articles about it while I was rewatching it. I went deep. Like I used to just like watch it for fun all the time. This is the first time I like tried to like read up on some of the making of stuff behind it, uh, which is really interesting. So, mm. like, like. If you care, <laughs> um, so like uh, the screenwriter Dale Launer, whose cousin apparently listens to this podcast. So, um, oh. her cousin hi, hi Dale, Dale's
6: cousin, yeah, Dale's
8: cousin. <laughs> um, he he has given a like you know a number of interviews. He also wrote Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, or updated or Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the Steve Martin Michael Caine one, and Ruthless People. Like really talented screenwriter, and um, he was talking about how the studio wanted to cut. Marissa Tomei's character. Mm. And then also they wanted, they insisted that if she'd be there, that he add a scene where she complained about not being paid enough attention to. And he really hated the idea of that. And so he's like, so I decided to make the scene like, the it's the biological clock ticking scene, right? And he's like, I decided to make it, like I had to do it, so I did it, but I did it in a way where like, Vinny is actually feels like the more unreasonable one in the situation. And she at least apologizes like right at the right immediately. So it just feels like light and funny and not like the nagging, dragging down girlfriend. Mm -hmm. He's like, and I decided to make her integral to the case so that they couldn't cut her character. (laughs) I was like, and then Marissa Tomei won an Oscar. So, you know, he also he also said that he wanted Robert De Niro. Uh, instead of Joe Pesci for, uh, the lead and the studio said De Niro doesn't do comedy. Um, and then like (laughs) (laughs) Dale Loudner's giving interviews years later, like during the, like, analyze this, analyze that era. He's like, De Niro only does comedy now. So (laughs) hello. Anyway, Pesci's great. So I, I, I don't think I would want De Niro in this role. I think Pesci's perfect, but yeah. Yeah. So it's a. I I love this film and I love Marissa Toman and I would never, ever, ever, ever take her Oscar from, from her for this. I think she deserves it.
5: Yeah. I mean, it's, she is the, like really the lifeblood of the movie. While still, I think it is a fair, I think she's in the right category. I think it is a supporting performance. Oh yeah. Um, you know, Um. so I think it's a great win. And I think, you know, part of the reason that people were skeptical about her win, you know, which was a rumor that. Apparently, Rex Reed, the critic, had something to do with, but and obviously spread like wildfire to the point that, like, you know, Jack Palance, who was who presented, had to kind of defend himself. It apparently all really hurt Tomei. But I, I think part of it is that that year, you know, this is a rare comedy win, and she was up against Joan Plowright, Vanessa Redgrave, Miranda Richardson, and Judy Davis. So these kind of, you know, more veteran... English March and, and Australian yeah. actresses, more prestige So I think the win stuck out that much more, um, which is just an unfair sort of context because that's just the year it happened to be.
2: I love a comedy win in this. And the, the early 90s were really kind of good period. Like uh, Whoopi Goldberg had won a few years earlier. Like Mira Sorvino wins a little bit later. There's really Diane interesting... Wiest. Yeah, I mean, there's some great performances in this run. Um, and I think Marissa Tomei's career since then has really done a lot to, um, like, make this... Like, make those jokes go away because she's done so much great work. Like, I think maybe, especially in the last decade, she's gotten another Oscar nomination. Um, like, it's so it's so exciting that she had this so earlier in her career and then was just like, okay, here, I'm going to do all this other fascinating stuff. I mean, she's made plenty of bad movies, too. Who hasn't? But um, a lot of her work recently has been so good and really uh, shoring up her talent that she showed in that.
6: I mean, you can see why people were basically like WTF about it, you know, and, and Richard obviously points out like literally up against Vanessa Redgrave and like the whole group. Um, and it's a caricature performance in many ways. And the movie is inherently, you know, silly. I mean, maybe one of the silliest things about it is the kind of fantasy that like um, the justice system works and, you know, <laughs> these guys wouldn't have been electrocuted. Um <laughs> So, but like, but on the other hand, of all of the five movies in that, you know, best supporting actress or really just looking at the whole Oscar field, basically, you know, there's not that many of those movies you would willingly rewatch right now. So, so what is the Oscar there to, um, you know, reward and what is quality? If quality's a movie that we want to watch so many times that we memorize all the lines to it. That's different from quality being, you know, I don't know, these like heavy duty kind of arty things. But I mean, arty, I like arty, but like these kind of self-consciously weighty, awardsy movies, I feel like it's it's like an eternal affliction of the Oscars. And so it's nice to see something that's actually fun and enjoyable to watch and good and makes some good points and has some really fun and great performances um, win, you know?
2: Yeah, when was the last time anyone watched Enchanted April or uh, Damage?
8: Which okay, if I'm being really honest, nice... I watched Enchanted April this year. So. Really? Yeah. <laughs> is is, that is that it any good? <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. But, okay. um You know what I this watched was this particularly year? particularly uh, disenchanted
5: April. <laughs>
6: the, yeah, really. The The Crying Game I recently watched, and um, I wish it had won something so we could do a rewatch on that.
5: i Well, never Neil seen Jordan that. has had
6: such a weird career, too. We make the, the rules, game. Mike.
8: Yeah. We can rewatch whatever we want. I guess <laughs> that's, that's true. That's the one Billy Crystal monologue song lyric that I like think about all those times he's like those eyes he's like it's it's like those thighs those eyes surprise it's the crying game or something like that from his thing anyway um so uh yeah the the interesting thing that I didn't know about my cousin Vinny despite having him Basically memorized uh, is that it's considered legally one of the like best representations of like what a courtroom like legally what could happen in a courtroom, which is surprising because it's like so entertaining and all these like antics happen in there, but lawyers merrick garland apparently like cited it in a ruling recently <laughs> um like lawyers love this movie because it is incredibly accurate because they like i guess they went to like various courtrooms in georgia and just like sat and watched trials and took notes and stuff like that and so like some of the uh even some of the lines are just pulled directly from courtroom cases as they watched Um uh, but yeah it was i was tweeting about it and a lawyer friend of mine tweeted out and he's like this is like the best lawyer movie, and I was like, "Really?" And I looked it up, and apparently, yes, uh, it is beloved by by lawyers. The other thing I was going to say is that, to Mike's point about the justice system, apparently, um, Will Smith was up for not the Ralph Macchio character, but the other, his like friend. And I gotta say, like, I kind of feel like that's a very different movie. If it's yeah, Will the Smith. tone would have changed dramatically yeah, it if you had have a been, black actor. Oh, exactly. It would have been really hard to keep it. Like because that's the thing is like these, you know, the, they they gently poke fun at the south and grits and all that sort of stuff, but like the southerners aren't villains in this, you know, in no. the end they're like,
2: "Yay, we're glad." And there's there's white and black actors kind of like filling out yeah. this town. Like I don't I don't know that it ever like directly addresses race, but like it, it makes it feel like you know, you, it's not ignoring race's role there, but, like, that's just not what the story is about.
6: Well, the, the Italians stand in for a kind of more palatable other. Right. Or, or <laughs> right exactly. Um, can, <laughs> can we talk for a second about Ralph Macchio? And yes. I know he's yeah. not the topic of this, but, like, I don't I was thinking about this last night, just struggling to, like, figure out the weird place that Ralph Macchio occupies in my psyche, mainly because of uh, The Outsider's. Mm. like like his role in the outsiders which was an inc- I, I probably was way too young when i first watched that movie like, that is one of the most tragic, insane things for, like, a young person to watch or was at the time. And then, and then he went and did The Karate Kid, which is incredible and was, like, world-changing, again, if you were a kid at the time. And then I don't think he's ever made another good movie except for this. And it's so funny that he pops in here with this very kind of, on the one hand, you know, it's dark. He's arrested for a, crime, a murder he didn't commit and all this other stuff. On the other hand, it's insanely light. Like there's no stakes really like you never the whole thing is just a farce. Um, But he it's a really interesting casting because he just has this kind of he always has this kind of I don't know what it is. Semi tragic slash inspiring. You want to just protect him from things thing. I don't know. I just it made me think about Ralph Macchio for the first time in a long time.
5: Well, I had forgotten what a big part he is in my cousin Vinny. You know, I for some reason in my my memory he was kind of a glorified cameo, and then was sort of pushed to the side and just sort of yeah. sat there in the, in the courtroom. But he actually does, you know, he's like he's like a big part of the movie. And you're right, Mike. Like he obviously had worked, you know, he had done some like potentially big projects between various karate kids and sequels and whatnot um, but none of them really stuck and this was kind of the last thing i mean it's a good thing to kind of end his you know first hot streak he's now you know a successful tv actor or whatever um but yeah he, he was in a weird position here
8: um, it's funny because I was reading Roger Ebert's review of the movie. He did not give it a very good review, and his main complaint seemed to be like that Ralph Macchio has co like co head billing with Joe Pesci and is like underutilized in the movie. And I was like, okay, but all right, but I'm okay with the amount of Ralph Macchio in this movie. I and mean, he does
2: have the amazing interrogation scenes, like I shot the clerk, I shot the clerk. Yeah. It's uh, you know, I guess as a Southerner, I'm really like, oh yeah, they don't know what to do with this. <laughs> it's just all also- completely.
8: <laughs> He also gets to say the title of the movie. It's my cousin Vinny. <laughs>
6: <laughs> I'm through with this guy. But, by the way, just absolutely. I got no more use for this guy. <laughs> oh, he's so, so, good. Him.
2: It's so good. What, He made this in Home 20... Alone like two years apart and like won an Oscar in the middle. Like his run in the early 90s was wild.
5: Yeah. Especially as someone who like wasn't an actor to begin with and was sort of like plucked out of like the, the music world by, I think, Scorsese. You know, who then, you know, just like 15 years later is like this Oscar winning, you know, kind of leading man in in a weird way.
8: Yeah. And then quits acting again because he's like, "Eh." there's this um, apparently they shot like an outtake scene where, you know, there's like the scene where he's in the prison and he's like sleeping like a baby while there's like a riot going on around him. And he finally gets some sleep. Uh, Apparently they shot a version of that where they pan down and he's cradling his Oscar because he had just like won it and flew back to set (laughs) and had his like Goodfellas (laughs) Oscar. (laughs) <laughs> while well, he's making my cousin Vinny. I love this movie. So yeah. good.
2: Uh, my uh, my friend of mine who grew up in Brooklyn um, loves this movie, and she kind of got me to watch it in college right around the time that I took a bunch of my college friends to South Carolina, like over spring break. And she was like, I'd like, I don't think I understood at the time how much like someone who's raised in Brooklyn would come to the South and be like, holy shit, what is this all about? And now I think watching it now I get how she's like, oh, yeah, I did feel like... Vincent Gambini, or <laughs> arriving in
8: Alabama when I came with you to your parents' house. All my, all my friends and I used to, like, imitate, like, memorize the Marissa Tomei speeches and, like, do them. You know what I mean? Like, you put your little deer lips down to the water. Like, all that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, are you sure I'm positive? Like, all that sort of like, like, we loved it. We loved this movie. It's so funny.
6: There are, like, three scenes where you're like, okay, I see why she won the Oscar. But the first one is the one of the little deer getting its head blown off. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's where you're like, okay, something very special happening with this But it's
5: watching that that scene in particular um, kind of reminded me of watching other movies during quarantine that I've like kind of returned to, like the First Wise Club, where there are these comedies from this era, previous to the comedy one we're in now, where like these movies were really written. I mean, there there are like monologues and like everything is really like tightly structured and and has a real sort of writerly quality to it whereas now everything is more loose and improvisatory and and obviously there are still scripts but i just like the kind of crispness of how much this is like almost written like a stage play um and and i just think that's maybe something of a lost art
2: yeah, I thought about this. I rewatched Sleepless in Seattle recently. And like, th- like that, both of these movies at that time felt kind of disposable. It's like, oh, yeah, well, it's like a, it's a studio comedy, but like, we like it. Um, and now they just feel like these gems because just nothing like that exists at all. The studios have completely given up on making things like this. Um, and it makes you
8: treasure it even more kind of looking at being like Roger Ebert. You didn't know what you had. You didn't appreciate it. Right, and I was just, I, I, I watched this, and then I actually watched Midnight Run right after it, which is a movie I'd never seen, but I knew it was like a De Niro comedy around the same time, and I was like, well, I should I should see what De Niro was up to comedy-wise right around now. And, uh, and it's really good, the De Niro, like, Grodin Road comedy sort of thing. But it's like, also, there's just, there's a, a heaviness to it, like, in a good way. There's, like, a weight to it, and, like, the physical gags are there, but they're not, like over-the-top broad slapstick comedy and so it's just sort of yeah it feels like feels smart you feel like you have a side of vegetables with your like whatever we would call
5: this pizza i don't know it's delicious
8: (laughs)
2: calzone yes (laughs) um all right any final thoughts on my cousin vinny
5: yeah i guess i just want like I saw a tweet uh yesterday from brandy jensen uh, a writer in new york who was saying that like oh i hope that we don't go back to normal after this i hope things are totally different like I hope they start making erotic thrillers again you know it's a funny tweet and, and actually a kind of interesting <laughs> worthy sentiment but I kind of I hope I want to go back to more of these kind of high concept fish out of water comedies obviously the oh, yeah. politics of them have to be different now and should be different but like I just, I just love the wacky X person ends up in wacky Y place and let's see what happens if it's as well scripted as a movie like this and well performed um, there's so much you can do with that little genre that I think has been kind of you know, moribund for the past few years.
2: It's all Hallmark movies now about the career woman who moves to the small Christmas town.
5: Every, but every town's a Christmas town.
8: <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's an exception because, okay, so I was watching Marissa Tomei do her little like Mona Lisa, uh, hand gestures. And I saw, I saw in them, Annie Murphy's Alexis Rose yes. performance in Shit's yeah. Creek mm-hmm. and Shit's, And then I was like, Wow, Shit's Creek actually, like, gets a lot of, like, the My and Vinny vibe just right. You know what I mean? Where you've got these colorful characters from out of town, these colorful characters in the town, and you like both of them, and you're sort of rooting for them to find mutual understanding. So, um... You know, if you like Schitt's Creek, watch my cousin Minnie. Well, I now guess. I
5: think that Schitt's Creek was lacking some sort of courtroom arc. <laughs>
8: <laughs> it should have done it. And I mean, like, <laughs> shout out to all the great character actors who are populating the like southern courtroom roles. You know, like uh, Fred Gwynn doing great job. Um, I love. I love, yeah.
2: The guy and- who plays Pendleton the lawyer, who is- um, yeah, that guy is that Austin, Austin Pendleton? Pendleton. Yeah, yeah, he's
5: a oh, great, New he's York great theater guy. Um, I once actually um, saw Austin Pendleton at this, alone at the bar at Marie's Crisis. And I introduced oh. myself and told him I had seen him uh, in a production in Boston of King Lear, and he a tear came to his eye, and he said, "Thank you for telling me that."
2: Wow. That's, That's so beautiful. Like, that feels like one of like that SNL sketch they did this weekend of them imagining themselves in all these New York scenes that are impossible right now. Like that feels like one of those. Like what a <laughs>
8: what a New York dream
2: yeah. right there. Um,
8: yeah. So Austin Pendleton, who actually who has a stutter a speech impediment, I was reading this thing about how they could they like no one in the room or behind the camera could keep a straight face while he was doing his like whole bit in the courtroom and like the director said he had to hide and not look at Austin while he was doing it because he couldn't stop laughing Um, and if you you look at that scene you can see Joe Pesci Ralph Macchio and the other guy whose name I don't remember I'm so sorry like cracking up behind Austin Pendleton at the at the desk uh, while he's doing his thing they're in like they're not in focus so unless you're looking for it you don't see it but I was like oh there they are just losing it I think I have to go watch that right now I love things like that (laughs) I made a tweet about it I'll send you the tweet I I clip To the video it's so good yeah no please do
2: um yes someone I uh, had when I was talking about our supporting actor poll for next week someone suggested doing um, a fish called Wanda on there and I was like it's so <sighs> tempting because Kevin Klein is another one of those just like complete masterful comedic performances from around the same time it feels too similar but it, uh, it's another one from this area that I appreciate
5: so yeah, good. and the client of it all is so interesting being that he was, like, regarded as one of the best young interpreters of Shakespeare alive, and then, like, <laughs> he was, like, the Mark Rylance of that his right. time, and then they were like, oh, now you're going to be this, like, kind of goofy guy in movies um, that are decidedly not Shakespearean. Um, yeah,
2: maybe we should uh, just do In-N-Out just for the hell of it. Uh, I, it's an Oscar of, movie.
5: of a movie kind of like in and out can I um, – Put forward a suggestion that I just discovered in our discussion of Ralph Macchio. Uh, In 1990, he was in the cast of a movie called Too Much Sun, which was directed by Robert Downey Sr. And it stars Robert Downey Jr. And here is the plot description from IMDb. (laughs) This is 1990, by the way. A multimillionaire whose son and daughter are gay leaves a will with one clause. His children will inherit his money only if at least one of them produces a grandchild within a year of his death. Whoa. <laughs> that sounds insane, and I can't wait to find it somewhere online.
2: Wow. Wow. I'm wow. looking at the poster right now. It is, uh, they're all in a car for some yep. reason. The font it, it, is like the most 1990 thing you've ever seen. Uh, let's find this. Let's make this our next Eric rewatch. Idol's
1: in it. You know, sure. <laughs> member FDIC. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash littlegoldmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp. H E L P.com slash littlegoldmen.
2: So now we have two interviews, as promised, to share. Um, first up, Hillary Busis, our Hollywood editor, is going to uh, jump back on the podcast to talk to Julio Torres, who is the creator and star of Los Spookies on HBO. He also has a stand-up special called My Favorite Shapes uh, and is uh, one of those people who's behind many of the SNL sketches that you like, probably. Um, Hillary knows way more about comedy than I do, so I was really excited to hear her talk to Julio. Let's listen to that now.
0: so how are you doing how's uh how's quarantine treating you today
4: uh i mean it's it's fine i uh, I am doing fine <laughs> <laughs> um today I am scribbling some ideas for a, a a virtual show that I'm doing on friday yeah sort of curating that and realizing that friday is very soon so
0: do you feel like it's more difficult to be creative under these circumstances or like somehow easier at all just because there are a few like you can't go outside there are fewer distractions besides the world crumbling around us
4: yeah i think it, i think it, i think i i i personally oscillate between the two i've surprised myself and been able to not be consumed by a 24-hour anxiety uh spiral i uh i i've, I've had a fairly productive time That shouldn't be taken as I'm in any way grateful that any of this has happened. But I'm 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 oddly right now at peace and I'm having a a productive time. I think this situation by the situation I mean quarantine, not the pandemic, because it's like two very different worlds. But this ritual of like not being able to leave has sort of awakened the the part of me that enjoys monotony and thrives in within limits and has this sort of like monk-like day-to-day life that I, I've, I've sort of been at peace with.
0: Do you have a routine that you've developed?
4: Yeah, I, I do. I, uh, I, I wake up, I have breakfast, I do like a little home workout, I waste time on my phone for a few hours, then I will start writing, then I'll eat, then I'll keep writing, then I'll eat again, uh, and then I'll watch one movie, and then I'll go to bed <laughs> and that's, that's every day
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds about where most of us are at this point. yeah. what have the movies been recently?'
4: It, uh, um, definitely a mixed bag I, I I think that my movie a day quarantine experience has solidified what I've known all along, which is that if the protagonist is a an AI. A hologram, a ghost uh a robot, or like pinocchio um I'm down. And those are the kinds of characters that that capture my my heart, so I've been trying to focus on movies that uh tell those stories i, I was I was thinking there's something to like the immigrant experience that feels very uh ghost a i pinocchio mermaid learning how to walk, sort of vibe to it so i think maybe that's why i connect to it like the, the the otherness in them but um uh i mean recently movies that i've seen that i've liked i really loved uh, a ghost story did you see that
0: was that the, the one with the sheet
4: that's the one with the sheet yeah it's the that's the that's the the lead in the film is a sheet ghost and it's, it's it's such a beautiful movie
0: that does seem very prime to your aesthetic
4: yeah yeah i really really loved it
0: like not just that it's a ghost, but that it's this tangible object.
4: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That that we are to project uh, meaning onto it.
0: Yeah, they actually uh, the studio um, sent out sheets to journalists when they were pro- promoting that movie. So somewhere okay, in the Vanity Fair office,
4: be marketing people to be like, "How do I? What's memorable? Just review this. Here's a sheet." <laughs> yeah. It,
0: It's still, it's bundled up somewhere in some corner. Uh,
4: Oh God, the thing with those marketing gimmicks is, okay, so you get the sheet, right? Like, what the hell do you do with it now? It's like, do you throw it in the garbage immediately? Do you wait a year and then you throw it into the garbage? At what point does the merch go into the garbage?
0: At the point when you move offices, that's when.
4: That's when all the merch goes into the garbage, yeah. I think that, oh God, I, I get like that, the, uh, Merch uh, situation in Hollywood just truly gives me hives. It's like we're looking to uh, reduce our carbon footprint here. Let's start by the screeners and the and the totes and the and the little trinkets.
0: Yeah, there is there is so much of that stuff. Although I feel I feel like as somebody with an appreciation for aesthetics and and for objects, like that you could. You know, do interesting things with the promotional thermos from Brittany runs a marathon or whatever.
4: <laughs> yeah, but there's something so like you know, the, the, these are like very soulless objects that are deployed. It's not like you're selling individual, personalized little things, which, which I would love. But um, yeah, I mean, the life of merch—that's that's a that's an interesting idea.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I'll use that as a. Just seamless segue into my favorite shapes. Yes. (laughs) Um, So when it came to, when you were designing this special, um, I guess it's, I have a chicken or egg question. Um, Were you sort of thinking of jokes and then find, or stories that you wanted to tell and then finding objects and like matching them to them? Or were you really just starting from a collection of things that you have or had seen and sort of spinning narratives based on them?
4: It was definitely an object first, at first, exercise in that I, my, the show came about because I, in my my day-to-day life, I, I would encounter objects that would make me laugh and I would think a lot about them and their inner life and this is sort of like a little thing that I've been doing since childhood and And then stand-up wasn't really a good vehicle for that, or at least, like, the the traditional stand-up, because, I mean, look, and I tried to, like, hold up a little object, uh, but then people can't see it. So then I thought, like, is there a show where I can just, like, tell the stories of these objects? And then, of course, the first thought would be to do, like, a PowerPoint um, in the grand tradition of funny PowerPoints, of which um, many comedians do. there's something that felt too like artificial about that, and then and then suddenly I realized, oh, I can just hook my my iPhone to a projector and sort of use it as a an overhead projector and show the objects and tell their their stories. But then, process-wise, after that, I did have uh, concepts and stories and jokes that didn't have a, a physical vessel to them. I casted those based on those roles.
0: (laughs) Was it really a process of, you know, you have, I'm just using like, you have like four different little swan toys in front of you and you have to pick which one is evoking the mood that you're going for?
4: More like a swan toy, uh, a a little bottle, uh, a cup, and like a pearl and like, which of these is this thing?
0: And that's just something that, you know, you know, intuitively.
4: Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, So the set of the show is so is so like idiosyncratic. Um, And uh, I read that your mother and your sister designed it.
4: Yes. Uh, My um, my mom is an architect and my sister is a a designer. And we have collaborated informally for a while. They have. Helped sketch and make a lot of the outfits that I've uh, I've worn for for different things and just making like furniture for my home and stuff like that and I it just felt necessary for them to conjure this this set that then um, Michael Kranz who was the uh, the art director adapted to the stage here in New York yeah yeah it it, it just felt like a very obvious process-wise uh, thing to do. And I think that as I keep doing what I'm doing, I hope that my career keeps requiring more sets and uh, tailor-made things specifically to my to my comedic needs. And I think that they, they will continue being sort of my, my art department.
0: Were there things that you wanted that weren't, they weren't able to execute uh, for the set?
4: Many. Um, (laughs) like what the first thing that comes to mind is i really wanted a a little pond in the center of the the stage because i i I really love the idea of going upstairs coming downstairs walking then splash 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 and i get to the other side and not even mention uh or address the the the, the, me splashing the pond and then be wet for the for the rest of my feet to be wet for the rest of the, the show. And everyone was very down for it, but then the, the budget wasn't. Um, turns out a little pond is not as cheap as it sounds.
0: Oh yeah, I wouldn't expect that to be a big hurdle to jump.
4: It, it was like, it got to a point where like every nail counted. And I think we stretched it so far. And um, one of the things that the show didn't need, I guess, was the, was the pond. But I'll have a pond and something else.
0: Having to kind of bend to the demands of like pragmatism or utility, it seems like that must've been difficult for you.
4: Oh, it always is. It always is. But I mean, I've been lucky that I've worked with very resourceful, very smart people in everything that I've done. In Los Bookies, for example, the show, I I take pride in how, how well-produced it is. And, and I think everyone was surprised that it looked that way because the, the, uh, the budget was for a more is for a more than traditional comedy rather than like cinematic multiple location multiple actor uh thing that, that that we made
0: yeah, definitely the visuals are such a huge part of that show um and it's so. I mean, it's it's like one of my favorite things about it is how the group itself, the the core quartet, when they're pulling off their scares, they're these like kind of charmingly lo-fi, like involving like pulleys and levers yeah. and things like that. Um, but then also within the world of the show, magic exists.
4: Yes, <laughs> I, I think that within uh, true to most of the things that I've done, there's this sort of like, well, yes, but also magic exists. Yeah, that sort of uh, came naturally. I feel like Anna and I write in this very organic uh, let it takes us where it takes us sort of way. And with that show, as with my favorite shapes and as with the work that I've done at SNL, writing for it, I've been lucky that I've had people above me be like, okay, yeah, yeah.
0: They never seemed puzzled by the... The notion that like there's there's like universe where like everybody has a reflection and it's a desert and it's covered in mirrors and obviously you can only go in there by coming through the same mirror that you used to leave the real world and
4: right yeah Uh, no I think there's there's a level of trust uh, to it that is is rare in networks and uh, uh, the the sort of like televised comedy world where there's a, there's, a, there's a level of trust to the artist that it feels wonderful and very real. And uh, it's sort of the difference between being treated like an artist and being treated like, a, like an employee or a, or a content creator.
0: Do you feel like you've been spoiled at all by like, being able to have this amount of control over the projects that you've made thus far?
4: Yes, yeah. But I, I really credit my experience at Saturday Night Live for awarding me that control and what's and I bring it up because what's incredibly rare of that show is that writers have an immense amount of control and if everything goes right then you can showcase your your own voice and have it look in the way that you see it working and you become a producer of your piece and it is very unlike any other show where you are writing for the voice of what that show is because that show is such a mosaic of, of varying points of view and it, it, it allows you to sort of become your own little micro showrunner and then you know then you have all these like proof of concept basically uh, of these shorts that by the time you get to HBO or whatever you're like oh no we we, we know that you know what, what you're doing
0: when you were when you were first uh auditioning for SNL um, or sending in your writing packet, what what were you, what were your pieces? Like, what did you audition with?
4: The first time I submitted for that show, it was like sturdy, this table has four legs sort of sketch writing. Because I feel like I was sort of masquerading as a sketch writer. And then I, I did not get the job that year, or at least one. And they sort of kept track of me via standup, where I was sort of a free agent, and then that's that's what got me the job, really, ultimately. And then and then once I had it, I operated in it in the same way that I that I did standup, which was just doing what I thought was good and what I thought was funny. And the first things that I I did on that show were verbatim copy pasted from my my standup work. Um, and. Ka kept operating that way.
0: And yeah, it's it's funny. Something that you say in uh, my favorite shapes is that you've been accused of being too niche, um, or maybe accused is the wrong word, but
4: you have <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: you have been labeled maybe as being too niche. Um, but when you look at your work for SNL, that's some of the biggest, like most viral sketches that they've had in years. Like Papyrus, the sketch that you wrote about the the font of the Avatar logo, that's been viewed on YouTube like twelve million times at this point.
4: Yeah, I mean that one had uh, a perfect combination of like star power and good casting, and just I love it when a role is just sort of tailor made for an actor. That's one of my very favorite things.
0: Did you envision Ryan Gosling in that part?
4: No, Ryan Gosling envisioned himself in that part, and that is why it worked so well. Yeah, I mean i I think that I think that what I do comes across as niche because, uh, because of the the form it takes the the, the, the the vessel it's in because it's presented in a um, sort of futuristic like Bauhaus kind of set with a conveyor belt and little objects but then if you actually take time and the actual content of it is I think very human in spite of it being apparently about a rectangle or a cactus um, which is what's compelling about uh, you know movies that star non-human <laughs> protagonists it isn't isn't they like surprisingly human spirits so i think that people when 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 people have said that what i do is too niche they're focused on the road i'm taking rather than the the destination i'm arriving at
0: and it helps i guess also that you know i feel like so many of your jokes are kind of centered in these like Like pop culture things that a lot of people will understand, you know, like tropes, um, and like tropes are something that come up on Los Spookies a lot also, like as they're doing these uh, like horror things, they're they're commenting on existing plot points and things that we'll see in movies and stuff like that, I mean yeah, I I guess that is just kind of a natural outgrowth, it's not like you're trying to marry this like avant-garde sensibility with these like more understandable things, but it just kind of happens that way.
4: It just kind of happens that way. Anna and I write in a, in Fred too, uh, I think that what unites us is we, we we do what we think is uh, funny and it's not burdened by expectation. So it sort of takes us where it takes us.
0: How difficult uh, is it on Spookies to write jokes that have to land both in Spanish and in English?
4: Uh, Not very, not very difficult. I think that there are definitely certain moments where we realize that oh this this moment is just not going to work both ways and then we have to make a decision about whether or not we we do it or or we find a middle ground and more often than not because they they're rare we will do it and allow it to be funny for just one side of the equation
0: can you think of any that come to mind from season 1
4: yeah yes i can i can think of moments uh, that are only applicable in Spanish, for example the um the character of the mayor she 's this very folksy character. The equivalent to her in America would be like a Sarah Palin kind of figure. She has this very like populist uh persona, so the the way she says certain words, I think are only funny if you know Spanish.
0: So it's the equivalent of like dropping your G's when you're trying to like sound.
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, like, like a like an Appalachian accent <laughs> is only is only would only be funny to uh, uh, an English speaker and probably only to an American.
0: Um, and the differing accents between you and your co-stars in uh, in Spookies is why you decided to not really define what country it's supposed to be taking place in.
4: Yes, um, that is. Because, because Cassandra and Bernardo are Mexican and I'm Salvadorian and Ana's Panamanian and Fred, uh, well, Panamanian American and Fred is Venezuelan American, then it just made sense for us to set it in nowhere in the limbo. And because also we were shooting in Chile and a lot of the local Chilean, uh, a lot of the actors are locally Chilean, then it, it just made sense for us to invent also just lend itself beautifully to it being this canvas of it being it being whatever we wanted it to be.
0: Do you think that you would give the place a name in season two or in future seasons or just kind of let it...
4: No, we debated about that. And I, I, you know, because there's two routes that we could have taken is like inventing and coming up with a name and uh, the exact location and uh, to uh, Wakanda, if you will. <laughs> um, but then there's something... And then, and then Anna was of the, the mindset that she preferred leaving it ambiguous and a mystery. And I kind of like that, that it sort of happens in this, not limbo, but it, it's sort of, there's something magical about it, you not knowing where it takes place, uh, that I, I think it's, it's more true to the show. So, yeah.
0: And it allows it to kind of take place out of time and space. You don't really have to address any real world no, stuff in it.
4: Exactly. So we we've embraced that. And I think that in season two, we embrace it even further.
0: Oh, can you say anything about uh, what's happening in season two?
4: We lean in more on the, the sort of eeriness that was present in season one. And we are sort of, we were shooting and then we have to stop for the reasons that everyone had to stop everything. And we were close to finishing the season or at least more than halfway through. And we hope to, we, we know that we will resume when it's safe <laughs> to do so.
0: Having having had that enforced pause, did that cause you and Fred and Anna to go back and you know look at any of what you had written for the rest of the season and reconsider it?
4: Well, logically, I think we'll have to uh, because if I mean it's it's sort of dumb to play the guessing game right now because no one knows anything and and to plan anything is is just a, an exercise in futility. But is it is it that we have to reevaluate scenes with in close proximity to each other? Do you know what I mean? And I guess the answer is we don't know yet, but probably. Mm-hmm. So logistics will have to be reevaluated, but also movie sets just can't operate if the idea is that every person on set and every actor and and staying six feet apart from each other.
0: Although I feel like if any. If any kind of story could figure out a way to accommodate
4: this, it would be. <laughs> I think we could. Yes, actually, yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, we've been able to deal and make a creative choice, a satisfying creative choice out of, of, of everything that's come our way. So, yeah.
0: Um, and when it comes to to your character, so you are playing Andres Chocolate Air. Um, he's, uh, I guess it doesn't matter if we sort of spoil what happens in season one, since it's no been it's, out for it, a while. A while. Oh. Um, But so he's been he's he's like forsaken his family um, and he's kind of striking out on his own. Do you feel like as an actor, this is giving you new opportunities to kind of try to broaden out your range? Or are you still I mean, do you consider Andres to be kind of uh, like an extension of your of your stand up persona and of that kind of work? Or are you going to use this as an opportunity to broaden out more?
4: He is like my id, I think. He is what, what I would be if I would allow the difficult sides of myself to run rampant and uh, uh, be sort of unbothered by the, the reality around me. So in season two, putting him in a context where he's no longer a little prince has been fun. Having him clash against reality.
0: Is his hair different?
4: His hair is longer.
0: Were, how did you feel about the blue? Were you ready to get done with it, be done with it by the time the show was oh, over? Oh,
4: God. Like, aesthetically, I love it. I think, it's, I think it's the right choice, and I stand by it. But the reality of re-bleaching your hair so you don't have roots every week and a half, and then, like, redoing the blue, and the blue, like, getting all over the place, and then the continuity problems because, like, I slept on the wrong side of the pillow, and now there's less blue on the... Uh, that was a nightmare. That was... That's an absolute nightmare.
0: Oh yeah, I guess that's not something that you think about when you're planning it.
4: Oh god, to me it was this like daily nightmare. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I like it. I like I like the blue hair.
0: Um, and I also wanted to ask about my favorite joke from season one, which is uh, the water demon who really wants to see the king's speech. Yes. Um, where did that come from?
4: Well, uh, I really wanted. So the war demons played by my, my, my friend spike. And, uh, I was really, really into the demon wanting something so small and so dumb. And then I, and then we kept talking. I'm like, what can it be? What? And, and then Anna was just like, what about just watching the King's speech? And that was so perfect. That was so perfect and so funny. And and that is why Water's Shadow longs to see the King's speech, because I love the idea that, first of all, I love the idea that those are the types of films that are universal. Yeah, there's there's something to like making fun of the idea that like certain pieces of media are universal and others aren't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I that's that's something great about the show too, is that even though it's, you know, bilingual, I think that it doesn't really, the language doesn't really matter and that the jokes kind of translate regardless, just because so much of it is so like earnest and good hearted and just absurd.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's equally accessible to both, uh, to both languages. Definitely. Which, which is something that I, 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 take pride in is to not, to not have the show be, about the Latin American experience, but to explained to an American audience because we have enough of those sorts of movies and shows that are like, "Hey, big broad audience, this is what being you know whatever is like," and uh, and then, and then and then that's is not what we do, and it's not what felt interesting, and I don't I don't like explaining things to audiences, and I think I've always stayed away from that things are the way that they are and it's a matter of trusting the audience to come into it rather than giving them a, your experience. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I love that also, um, on the show, like one character will speak Spanish and the other will answer in English and they just understand each other. It doesn't have to be, you know.
4: The thing is, it's like, that is also how it happens in the, in, in the book. Uh, Anna's mother speaks Spanish to her and she answers back in English for example, because Anna's Anna's experience has been in English. And I think Fred has the same dynamic with his mom. And um, there's so many, it's just true to the world.
0: Yeah, so it's still, I guess, reflecting the experience, if not explaining it.
4: Right, right. I feel like in in some some other network would have given us a note of like, okay, then you need to say, like, when I talk to my abuela, I talk to her in English because I was raised here, and that she talks to me, like, and, and just, like, set the rules up. But it's like, no, in our show, there's a parasitic demon, and there are reflections that get escape from their mirrors, and, and some people speak Spanish, and some people speak English, and that's just, that's just that.
0: Although there is that one throwaway joke about Anna's accent, about her, about Tati spending two weeks in Minnesota.
4: Yeah, and uh, not learning how to speak English, but actually losing some Spanish.
0: Um, so when it, I, you, you mentioned earlier that you were working on this uh, quarantine comedy show uh, for Friday, um, how, what's, what's the process of trying to put together? I mean, are, are you like pre-taping stuff and then gonna like weave it together at the end? Or are you trying to do something live?
4: Oh God, see that would have been better. That would have been <laughs> so much smarter. No, I'm doing it live. I'm doing it live like I am here with all the glitches that you've noticed, with all the like me freezing that you've <laughs> shoddy internet connection. I'm doing that I'm doing it like that and people are calling it. Other comedians are chiming in for a little bit. So, you know, it'll be riddled with technical difficulties, but it's a, it's an experiment and um I, I hope it goes well.
0: Oh, um, and I was wondering um, about your, your orange quarantine hair, if that was to reflect a certain mood or, you know, why you've chosen that.
4: I, um, I, I mean, I guess all ha- hair choices are reflective of, of a mood. I've, I've been feeling very lava, fire, sun, and trying to uh, connect with and evoke energy and, and enjoy. So I think that's why orange came, came into my life.
0: Yeah, a little burst of some life and energy right now seems like a good thing.
4: Yeah, exactly. Hey, I'm Brian
6: Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial.
5: People want coverage of Donald Trump. They're sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years.
6: Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
2: Okay, now, Joanna, um, tell me about your conversation with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. What a combo on the phone. All right, Resner
8: Ross, a.k.a. Nine Inch Nails. Um, so they did the, you know, they, they won an Oscar for The Social Network, and that was sort of their first foray into the world of scores, film scores. They did it to kind of challenge themselves. They then went on to, you know, their their score sound is now kind of iconic to us, right? You can hear a, a Reznor-Ross score. Um, but they decided to challenge themselves even further by doing a TV show, which is, like, sort of even more of a collaborative process. So they they hopped on to David Lindelof's Watchmen uh, to do this incredible, incredible score. Uh, there's a lot of elements of, you know, Watchmen is, loves its, like, Easter eggs, so there's a lot of auditory Easter eggs uh, in their score. They did this pastiche of, like, sort of a big- Band ballad the way it used to be, which they talked to me about, and then also if you're a fan of that score, you may already know that the score produced three vinyl records that were sort of like debuted in this mysterious manner with this like uh, extra literature and Nine Inch Nails sort of like they're called the Nine Inch Nails, which is a social network joke. They're called the Nine Inch Nails, and they're (laughs) uh, (laughs) they exist inside the universe of Watchmen. So it is just like layers upon layers of like fun, uh, fun stuff. So they're here to talk about their process and those albums and how they came to be and and all of that so here is Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross well Trent Reznor Atticus Ross thank you both so much for joining us uh, for a chat
3: it's our pleasure gets us both out of being home school
8: teachers oh good happy to oblige Before the season of Watchmen started, I had a conversation with executive producer and director Nicole Castle, who told me that she put together this elaborate sort of mood board, visual mood board for Damon Lindelof in order to get the job. I'm curious, does an audio version of a mood board exist? And if so, would such a thing be useful for a project like this?
3: When we got on board, I think the pilot had been written. Everything was kind of gelled in terms of overall arc of the story, production design, etc. cetera. And, and we, like all projects, kind of just sit and listen initially and try to get as much inside the head of the creative as we can. So we absorbed as much as we could comprehend from a barrage of information of, it's about this, but it's really about this, but it has this, and it has this. And it ties into the original canon like this, but it goes before and after and juxtaposes this against that. <laughs> You know, it was a lot to take in to try to figure out. We could hear passion and we could hear intense research and we could tell how long this had been uh, gestating and being carefully considered, um, especially the daring nature of, one, taking on an IP that's that personal and sacred to a lot of people, and secondly, not playing it safe with that IP. What we couldn't tell what really was what they wanted music to do. You know, and there wasn't really many clues from going back and watching Lost or Leftovers to kind of see how, what, how Damon leans in that department. So we, uh, rather than trying to describe music yet to be written to someone, we just create a bunch of stuff that feels like it, we think it might belong in a universe. Not, not to a specific scene or for a specific purpose, but here's how it manifests it from what we've absorbed here's what we think is right, you know, coloring kind of outside the lines, a few different directions. And then right up by Damon, and it was an hour, maybe 90 minutes of stuff, that were kind of, hit all the, hit all the spaces we thought felt instinctually kind of right to him, and probably played it a little timid too, because we, we didn't want to scare him right off the bat. And that, <laughs> that ended up being very informative, and that's kind of a strategy that we use on most of the projects we take on. You know, we look at it as we're being brought in to help support and hopefully embellish and improve upon your story you're trying to tell. How can we do that? And how can we do it uh, uniquely and distinctly? But it's your story. We're here to, we're here to help uh, color, in the, color in the picture.
7: I think Trent described it perfectly, but a mood board is an interesting word to use, but we always do do a a mood board. We don't think of it like that. We're really starting composition to the script. What was interesting about the Watchmen one was it was probably our least successful mood board in the history of projects. (laughs) Not because the music was bad. The, The music's great, I think. But the only piece that was in that original mood board that made it into the show was How the West Was Really Won, which is ultimately the kind of Watchmen theme. Whereas once we got the picture, you know, like Trent said, it it was very difficult to tell, much more so than normal, reading the script, what the role of music would be. Once we got the picture, it was like, oh, okay, He wants it to be up front. He wants it to be a character. And it was an unusual place to be because it was a different kind of score, one that lent itself to, you know, a variety of things. Basically a toolbox that is somewhat Nine Inch Nails related. And
3: we hadn't really been able to do that before. So there was a lot of fun. It was a pleasant surprise to see, and when I say we were being a little timid, I think, you know, as we're kind of feeling, our camps are feeling each other out, we, we were being pretty cerebral about you know, the role of music, and we don't want to step on anybody's toes, and we want to stay in our lane a little bit and try these different things, and what they were responding to is, no, turn that shit up, <laughs> this is going to be playful at times it's not a punishing watch it should also have a release and reaction and the role of music is going to be right in your face quite often and we're always afraid of you know an analogy for our life is in the room mixing and the guitar players call hey turn it up turn the guitar up turn the guitar up so this was our opportunity to turn the fucking music up you know, sound effects down maybe we need some dialogue in there but let's feature the music you know and that, that was a kind of refreshing palette to work with.
8: Yeah, I've, I've talked to uh, a lot of composers. Uh, the one that comes to mind is Ramin Javadi for his work on Game of Thrones, where he always had to compete with the sound effects of like a dragon or something exploding. And he's like, my music, though, come on. Yeah, that's an
3: interesting thing because we our initiation into this world really was David Fincher and his camp, mm-hmm. and right off the bat, I, I think he looks at as we do is if you're hearing, you know, sound effects, score, dialogue, it's all coming in through the same senses. know, We're all doing the same thing. I don't think people just uh, differentiate. No, no, that's that's the effects track. Ooh, that's score over there. So we, right off the bat, worked as a team on those films with a. Uh, there's a floor cleaner in this Segway. Someone's worrying about polishing the floor. What key is that in? Let's make sure it's in a complimentary key to the notes that are coming in to the music passages exiting and starting up because it all is music. It all is the sound of the the film. So it doesn't always work that way that we found. Some, Some projects are those separate camps and the mixing room is the battleground.
7: I think the nature of of our music, though, as well, does kind of encompass an aspect of sound design. Like, if you think of the riot, the massacre that opens episode one of Watchmen, you could actually just turn the music up and have no sound effects, and I think it would carry the scene, you know. I mean, I know there's some gunshots and stuff like that, but the point I'm trying to make is when we... Approach, you know, for instance, that scene, we're not just thinking about music. The music also encompasses some aspect of sound design. And I think it's just a kind of
3: point of interest. There wasn't any sound design, it was just a rough cut. So we, just by nature of writing the music, kind of did the role of sound design Um, by having the music fill in those holes. Then the sound design guy says, What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. It, it was his turn on this
7: one to be like, what the fuck? Yeah.
8: I wanted to ask you, uh, Watchmen, both on the page and in Damon's sort of riff on it here, is a property obsessed with pop culture and and the way in which it, it has influenced uh, history. With something like this show where, you know, even the musical Oklahoma is an influential part of the story they're telling, does that influence how you go about putting your part of the story together?
7: We never sat down and specifically thought of it in the, in the, in the way that you phrased the question. Mm-hmm. But obviously the music does encompass and allude to pop culture in a variety of different ways but it's not the main story is not there's no irony in it the only piece of the puzzle where that came into play was you know American hero story where we were the show within the show where we were deliberately you know with no disrespect but we were kind of having some fun, vaguely trolling... Uh, with a little disrespect. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mar- you know, the kind of, you know, the generic superhero-type approach with horn stabs or every punch and, you know, over-the-top orchestration and whatnot. I don't know if that answers your question, but... No,
8: it does. Well, wh- what about something like the way it used to be, uh, which is in, I think, episode six... Which is this beautiful ballad that that you've created? That is, you know, unlike the sound people are used to hearing from you.
3: As we uh, kind of got into the thick of it, you know, episode the pilot started with a kind of formal spotting session where we went went to the offices and sat around and watched and stopped it after every music cue and talked about and had meaningful discussions and took notes and went home and typed the notes up and. I think that was the only one we ever did, because what happened after that was there was a trust established, and the sense that we could go through the pageantry of that, or we could just call each other and talk, and we could kind of finish each other's sentences, Damon and, and us, and we felt it, and we got the impression that he felt it as well, ah, these guys aren't going to just deliver a few tracks, and we have to figure out how to make it work. They're They're in just like, I'm in. Which we were, which was the only mission we had for those several months, was how can we make this the best thing possible. So as I think that trust developed, the asks would start to increase. You know, and the trickier things would start to be presented. Hey, you know, hey, I know it needs to be done by next week, but is there any way we could do something through this piece? You know, or we thought about using a needle drop for something in this piece, but wouldn't it be awesome if we could have? a piece of music that sounded authentically 1940s, I'm hearing a female vocalist with lyrics that could feel haunting set against this scene of the lynching, you know, something that's just grotesque. Coupled with the fact we can't get any music to license because no publisher wants to have their music against that Can <laughs> right. We have it in a week. And that's not replacing any other work that's in in addition to an already pretty intense television schedule that was also kind of new for us to think about. So what was interesting about this project, there was enough kind of momentum and excitement and skin in the game, coupled with Damon's relentless insecurity, which I think also brought us closer to him since we suffer from the same Disease, uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. I don't know if this is the worst fucking thing I've ever done, or if it's the great, you know, <laughs> that feeling. Yeah. It really uh, the kind of adrenaline of that situation when presented with a an seemingly impossible ask. Thought, well, let's try it. Let's see. I don't know if we, I don't know if we can write that song or not. And you know, for a weekend of inspiration, the bones of it were born, and the demo was like, man, hey, if we could record this in that style, it would be perfect. And Miraculously, it all came together, and it was, you know, looking back at something fun for us, now that the the stress and the sweaty sheets and throwing up is over, (laughs) you can look back and say, hey, it's great to be involved in a project that it becomes as fulfilling and rewarding and challenging with people you care about and you respect, and that's what Watchmen ended up being for us, is all those things.
8: You did work with um for Twin Peaks the Return with David and um I know that David Lynch is one of Damon Lindelof's like biggest heroes in the entire world. And so I'm just wondering if you if you had conversations around that and I know it's wildly different to do one song for Twin Peaks the Return and entire score for a season of television, but sort of if it's possible to compare those two uh creative experiences.
3: Um for the return, it really was a couple conversations, and could you do this thing for me? So there wasn't a lot of intimate back and forth. Other than I'm kind of looking for something like this. And we turned in one thing, and they said, nah, needs to be much more gut churning. Ah, and so we turned in what we turned in, uh, and then and then it would show up on the set, and you know for a super surreal evening of performing at the bar. Most of my interaction with David was on Lost Highway years ago where he came to New Orleans and hung out for a few days. And My experience with David Lynch was you're around someone who is, I can't say I felt like, oh, I feel a deep connection, like we're, we're best friends. And I don't mean that in a standoffish way. I just mean I think the interaction was one of oh, very generous, but it's it's providing you with riddles, and you are interpreting kind of you're on your stage doing this thing for him. Here's a series of clues, and here's a scribble on a piece of paper. Make it sound like that. <laughs> All right. And you're constantly like, oh, man, I'm in the fucking room with David Lynch. You know? <laughs> and with uh, Damon. It it felt much more like you're someone who kind of operates the way we do, you know, and it it was a much more intense and lengthy working experience, you know, where you're. So I I love both of their approaches and their attention to detail and knowing what they want. and that way, they're very similar. They're very, they have a vision. And... You know, we, we felt the same way when working with Fincher. You know, what, what would amaze me was the ability to micro-get into the most minute details of the tiniest things and, and be usually right about them. You know, it really needs to have this little thing right there that does this thing like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the same token, be also thinking about the several mile up. Big picture of why that little thing matters because it's in the context of this scene, which is in the context of this act, which is in the context of this overall arc. And being able to keep track of all those things, I think, is a super talent that it feels so much larger than the world we normally live in. Nine Inch Nails, you know. Here's a song. We hope it's good. You know, and it's not a thing inside a thing, inside another thing. It's you know, has has hundreds of people involved in making sure it works. That 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 part feels daunting, doesn't it? It's impressive to see when people can pull that off.
8: My last question for both of you is, you know, this great work on on the show can stand alone, but then it comes with this added treat for fans of these three physical albums, and this you know, fun, mysterious unveiling of the albums and all of that how much involvement did you have, especially in Volume 3, which has this alternative history of of the Nine Inch Nails and, you know, all of that involved. How much involvement do you have in the crafting of these three albums physically?
3: Well, it was clear as the series was shooting that there was a lot more story than can fit on those hours of television. And I've always been a big fan of Multimedia storytelling that kind of transcends one medium but spills over into other things. But we did an uh, alternate reality game with Year Zero. An mm-hmm. incredibly rewarding process of being able to tell a story across different mediums that involves kind of groupthink, participation, and the mystery box of discovering things, which leads up to a reveal of something. You know, and it kind of, it, ARGs kind of feel out of date today, but back then, 10 or so years ago, it was, it was a compelling way to draw on an audience. You know? and I could tell there was an appetite on Damon's end to fill in some of the blanks. And as we weren't as close to the project as, of course, he was, there'd be things we'd mention like, hey, why does this happen? Because it's not re- like, why are there no electronics in this world? You know, we never kind of spill that out so much. Why doesn't anyone have a cell phone? And there's an encyclopedic reason why, you know, and I joined in the chorus of saying, Atticus and I both did, of saying, it'd be great if there's some canvas to tell that story, you know. You know, when we realized there was a pretty significant amount of music that it would be fun to put out in a fun way, you know, we pitched them with the idea of, hey, what if we, we want to add more work to your plate, but would you be open to having the records live in fiction, in canon, you know, we're not going to be the ones writing that fiction because we didn't in the first place. But would it be too much of a drain on resources? Or is it a cool idea? You know, and Damon lit up the idea, and then we started working with Jeff Jensen, who was a uh, story editor of Watchmen. Yeah. And that guy, man, he's insane when it comes to yeah. anything possible to do with Watchmen. So we were then met with a plethora of ideas. Uh, what about this? What about that? What about this? And most of the concepts of the records were his, and particularly the last one, because we, he had to kind of talk us into being in it, because it felt like, look, we don't, we don't want to insert ourselves. But then as we thought about it, I thought, no, that would actually be... It was exciting to us because I could imagine the confusion on the, on the fans' part. Like, wait, what is this again? <laughs> yeah. My insistence was that we don't break fiction anywhere, the record, everything on the physical record, the fiction drops when sound comes out of the turntable, but everything else we never show our hand that, no, it's really just not, it's really a Trent Atticus. It was fun to pull it off, you know, it was just another one of those things that, like the graphic novel, like the series that Damon did, it so deeply thought through what it was trying to say, that you know, when we were doing it, we are thinking nobody's going to understand these super deep essays that they're, you know, what the fuck's going on. But that's kind of what makes it cool. I think in a world of Instagram-length attention spans, you know, that stuff that has meaning that one can spend time thinking about that reveals itself as layered and intricate. We need more things like that. That's the kind of stuff we like, so that was the motivation.
8: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the chat. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope homeschooling continues to go well uh, in these (laughs) quarantine times. And I look forward to what you do next.
2: That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. And the winner of our poll for next week is Cabaret. We'll be talking about the Best Supporting Actor winning performance from Joel Gray. And um, there's lots of other things to talk about with Cabaret. So
5: Next week belongs to us. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, in the meantime, you can find us all at vanityfair.com. You can find Richard's review of Capone and lots of other things. You can find us at Little Gold Men on Twitter, where we love to hear from you, and you can find the polls for our rewatch series. Um, and you can find us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard.
5: Rylaw's not at Can.
2: Yes. Uh, and Mike had to go, but he is at Mike underscore Hogan. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of what Quibi hoped to be goes to Mike Hogan.
6: It's a 21st century pacifier.
8: The Run for revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, who should be the mayor of New York.
2: We all support that. We
8: support that. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki.
4: Yes. It's been
8: really great being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us?
5: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
8: We can. We can.
5: All right, here we are. (laughs)